the question that we've been seeking to answer as we've been looking together week by week through this book of uh, Malachi. It's a question that they were asking too. They were saying, where is God? Is God ever going to show up like he used to? Is God ever going to move in great power like we know that he can and we've heard all about? Where is the blessing we know that God can bring? That's what they're asking. And they're quite hacked off with God, really, because they don't see many signs of his blessing. They don't know or haven't experienced much of his power. And to say they're getting irritated is rather an understatement. They, they feel like God's let them down. They feel like God's turned away, abandoned them. And they're even wondering whether God still loves them like he uh, so obviously loved their forefathers. And through the book of Malachi, in different ways, gently and strongly on times, God is saying, no, you've got it all wrong. It's all topsy-turvy. You're looking at it all the wrong way up. I haven't stopped loving you. I haven't abandoned you or walked away. In fact, quite the contrary. It's not what I've done, but what you've done. You've turned away. And we saw that verse last time. You've turned away. You've turned away in your worship. You offer me diseased and crippled animals and you wonder why your worship isn't blessed. You've turned away from me in your relationships. Uh, uh, You've married people without being committed to spending the rest of your life with them. You've broken faith with the wife of your youth. You've married people that have compromised your faith, sometimes fatally compromised your faith. You've been cheating me with tithes and offerings. You've put your trust in yourselves and and you wonder why heaven is closed, all shut up. You you wonder why it's all gone upside down and topsy-turvy. You've turned away. But, and the whole of Malachi is a big but on their situation. You might be like this, but, but, you have turned away, but, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Sort yourselves out and suddenly the Lord that you're seeking, the one that you desire, the blessing that you're longing for, that one, that person, suddenly the Lord will come to his temple. The tragedy was this. Their complaint was against God, and because they were so focused on what they thought God had got wrong, they couldn't see the wrong in their own situation. They couldn't see that they were spiritually dry and spiritually poor. They couldn't see what they'd become. All they could see was that God, in their opinion, wasn't being fair. God, in their opinion, wasn't doing what God should do. So familiar were they with what was wrong, they could no longer see it. And we see that time and time again in this book of Malachi. They ask questions of God, embarrassingly so, on times. For example, in chapter 2, God says says through Malachi, you've wearied the Lord with your words, Uh, and they go, we don't understand that. How have we wearied the Lord? And then in chapter 3, will a man rob God, yet you rob me? And they go, "Uh, we don't understand that. How on earth are we robbing you? And God says, with tithes and offerings and so on. And now here again, in the second part of chapter 3, the same lack of understanding about what's wrong. You've said harsh things against me, says the Lord, yet you, uh, we don't understand. What harsh things have we ever said against God? If we're serious about revival, we'll need to be serious about God showing us things in our lives that maybe we can't see, maybe we don't want to see, maybe we would rather not see, but that we must see and put right in order to seek him 
with all of our hearts. Dare we ask God to show us. The Bible says, of course, that if we claim to be without sin, that, that's just a joke, we're just deceiving ourselves. But dare we ask him to show us the things that are wrong that we just can't see right now. Such is the blindness of our human condition that it's so easy for things to be wrong and for us just not to see it. We can be experts at pointing out the wrong in others and yet blind to something similar in ourselves. Jesus talked about that, didn't he? He talked about the time when uh, he he gave a a picture of someone trying to take a speck out of someone else's eye whilst they had a whacking great plank in their own eye. And Jesus is saying it's dead easy to see what's wrong in somebody else. But what I want to talk about, Malachi is making the same point, What I want to talk about is what's wrong with you just now. The wrong may be that you can't see. Remember David, King David, the greatest king of Israel. Up late one night, hot and sticky, maybe like our night, Santee, went out onto the roof and he saw uh, a lady Bathsheba bathing. Apparently she was beautiful, she was probably naked. And he saw her and he lusted after her. To cut a long story short, uh, he uh, had an affair with her. She became pregnant. That was his undoing in so many ways because now there was the potential that his sin could be exposed. He could be found out. So he went to great lengths to cover up his sin. Uh, he, he, he encouraged Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, to come home that they might sleep together. Uriah was a noble man and did no such thing while the rest of the country was at war. So uh, David had to arrange for Uriah to be killed and so the story tumbles one thing after another in order for David to cover up his crime. It all started with what he looked at. So be careful with what you look at. Be careful with what you feast your eyes on. That's why I'm not going to look at Julie Kite's new MacBook. (laughs) Because it could lead to all kinds of wrong things. Be careful. The lust of the eyes the Bible speaks of. Be very careful what you feast your eyes on. That's all David did, innocently maybe at first one night, and it all tumbled so tragically wrong. But he couldn't see it. He'd covered it up. He'd gone to great lengths to cover it up, and he thought he got away with it. And he carried on with the rest of his life until one day a prophet turned up called Nathan. Uh, And Nathan simply tells this story. He says, hey, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David immediately saw how wrong that was. And David, it says, burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as uh, the man, sorry, next verse, as surely as the man uh, who did this uh, lives, he deserves to die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. David saw very clearly what was wrong, but he couldn't see it in his own situation. He couldn't see it in his own heart, in his own life, in his own mind. And uh, Nathan famously said very simply, hey, David, it's as simple as this. You are the man. You are the man. And maybe there are things in our lives where God just needs to say simply, but yet profoundly, if we're to seek him with all of our hearts, for him to move in power amongst us, say, you're the man, you're the woman, that's you. That's you too. That's you too. Whilst we're razor sharp at pointing out what's wrong in others, what about allowing God to point out what's wrong with us? Are we any different to David? No, not really. Do we share that same blight? Yes, yes we do, of course. Of course. And so as we return to God, to seek him afresh requires a willingness, 
That's the hardest bit, isn't it? Am I willing for God to uncover those things in my life that I'm so comfortable with, I don't see them anymore, and perhaps if I instinctively know deep down maybe they're there, I don't really want to see them anyway, thank you uh, ever so much. It's not about what's wrong with somebody else, or what's wrong with this church, or what's wrong with another church, or what's wrong with this, that, or the other, but, but what about me? And they couldn't see it. And they couldn't see it. The Lewis revival, the last revival in the United Kingdom, the Hebridean revival that began in 1949, began with a prayer that God would reveal what they couldn't see. Uh, About four months of praying together for revival, the youngest deacon apparently read from Psalm 24 about having clean hands and a pure heart. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false, he will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God his Saviour. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. That's what he read. Then we read, he placed his open Bible between his feet and said, it seems to be so much humbug that we are praying as we are for God to come when we ourselves are not rightly related to God. Then lifting up his hands towards heaven, he cried, Almighty God, are my hands clean? Is my heart pure? What a scary prayer. The prayer of examination. A prayer that says, Lord, let me no longer kid myself that just because the the front lawn of my life looks all mowed and tidy, then everything else is all well with the world. He says he got no further and fell prostrate on the floor. Before long, those present were confessing their sins and receiving forgiveness. And the spiritual awakening came. The Lord searches every heart, understands every motive behind the thoughts. Dare we pray, Lord, reveal. Reveal what I need to see. The Holy Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. Are my hands clean? my heart pure? That's what was going on in these verses, you see. They, they, they were saying to God, well, what's wrong with us? What's, what's going on here? And it was a prayer that God would prove to be quick to answer. A prayer that David had learnt to pray. Search me, O God. David learnt later in life to pray. Maybe out of this experience with Bathsheba. Search me, O God, and know my heart. See, look, is there any offensive way in me, and then lead me in the way everlasting. So back to chapter 3 of Malachi, and they're in this fog. They can't see what's wrong through several things that, that, that the Lord has been bringing to them, and now here it comes again. They can't see. You've said harsh things against me, says the Lord, and yet you ask, what have we said against you? They can't see it. They don't understand it. They don't really know what Malachi is on about. And so he tells them, You have said it's futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? In short, they were saying that God was no longer worth trusting. They'd lost faith in God. It's futile to serve God, they were saying in their hearts. There's no point to this. We're going through the motions, but it's it's pointless, really. It wasn't that they didn't believe that God still existed 
or that he was the creator of the world, or maybe that they'd stopped believing certain things about him, but they'd lost their faith that God could be active and at work in their lives right there and then. He certainly was long ago, but they'd lost faith. It's futile to serve God. What's the point? We go to church, we say our prayers, we do this, we do that, we do our small groups, we do whatever, we bring our money, whatever it might be. And they say, there's no point. God never does anything anymore. This religion of ours is just that, a religion of doing that has nothing, no worth attached to it anymore. We are not blessed. We don't see God, we don't see His presence, His power and His glory. And they've lost faith. If you like, they've become cynical. Cynical. God never does anything. God doesn't answer our prayers. God never saves us in trouble. God never brings blessing to us anymore. Look at all we do. We still do this and we still do that. But where is God? What's the point of it all? It's not hard to find Christians that are expressing cynicism. It's not hard to find ourselves in that place, thinking in our hearts, it's pointless, it's futile, really. We pray, but we don't really expect God to answer our prayers. We don't really expect to see God active and at work in our ordinary lives. When Heather says, the family thing, this week, talk about what God's doing, some of us go, God doesn't do anything. And we're not sure that he will. It's easy to come to church and never really believe that church can do much anymore. We came to faith in our youth, but it's easy not to believe that our children and young people can come to know him like we did. Is there any point? And we've lost faith that God really can change people's lives from the inside out. And sometimes this cynicism, I find, can be so ingrained, even in our community of faith, that when we talk about God doing amazing things, people outside are really interested and open in what we're saying, and we're going, not sure, not sure about that. What's the point? Where is he? Where is he? We talk it all up. But where is he, really? That's where they were. In their hearts they were going, it's no point. No point in this. No point in this seeking. No point really getting this worship sorted out and sorting out our relationships and sorting out, what's the point? God doesn't do anything anymore. It's all futile. If the people of Malachi's day were going to see God move in a new way, they would need to change their cynicism for faith. And so do we. Why? Because there's the necessity of faith. The necessity of faith. And that's the way Jesus taught his disciples, didn't he? So many different times Jesus uh, pointed out when he moved in a significant way that, that faith was involved. That faith was involved. Remember the story that I preached on at, uh, uh, in Romania last week of the, the four men that took their paralytic friend to Jesus up on the roof, hole in the roof, lowered him down. Before Jesus does anything, what does he say? He says something about faith. When Jesus saw their faith. What does Jesus need to say that? What doesn't Jesus say, look, I can do anything, so here we go, I'm going to do it. I can forgive sins and heal his legs, so I'll do both all in one go. Hey, it's all about me. Because it was all about him. 
He goes, no, there, there, was, there was faith at work here. And then remember the story of the woman who for 12 years had suffered a sickness and she tried all the doctors, she tried everything that this world could give and still she was sick and she thinks one day, she's heard about Jesus, if only I can touch him and she pushes through the crowd. She shouldn't have been there but such is her determination now. She pushes and she touches him and, and, and the Bible says Jesus felt power go out of him. So who healed the woman? Okay, let's do that again, alright? The Bible says power came out of Jesus. Who, who healed the woman? Jesus, okay. So, so the text is very clear. Jesus has healed the woman. There's no, there's no sense in which um, it was the power of positive thinking or something like that. And power comes out of Jesus. Jesus turns around and goes, who touched me? The disciples go, that's ridiculous. Everyone's touching you. But Jesus knew it was different. Who touched me? And eventually this woman says, well, it was, it was, it was me. What does Jesus say? What does Jesus say? Your faith has healed you. Your faith has healed you. He didn't need to say that, did he? But he wants to show there was something in this woman's attitude that unlocked the power and the presence of God. He wanted to show to the four friends that their faith had unlocked the power of God. Uh, and then a, a final example, the centurion, who wasn't even uh, a, a member of, the, the sort of, uh, of, of Israel. So in a sense, he was an outsider. And, uh, and he needs help with a servant. And, uh, and anyway, he goes to Jesus and he says, you don't even need to come to my house. If you just say the word, I, I know that it will be done. And Jesus goes, wow, I've never, never seen faith like that in Israel. And then a bit later on in the story, Jesus says, go, it will be done just as you believed it would. Well, what's all this about? Why doesn't Jesus just draw attention to his ability to heal? No, because he needs us to understand that we need to unlock his work in our lives by replacing cynicism with faith. Because there's a flip side. If faith unlocks the work of God, what happens when there's not much faith? This was in Nazareth, his hometown. You would have thought it would have been a home run in his hometown. Nothing much happened. Because Jesus couldn't be bothered. He did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. The activity of God takes place in an environment of faith. So, back to Malachi for a moment. There they are, longing for God to move, and God's saying to them, well, okay, you're going to have to ditch this heartfelt attitude of cynicism that nothing much happens here, and start beginning to believe that this is a place where God can and will work. You see, they were on a downwardly vicious, a vicious downward spiral. You see, they, they didn't think God was doing very much, so they lost their faith a bit more. And because they lost their faith a bit more, God did even less, which kind of confirmed that they were right, that God's not doing anything anymore. And so it went down and down. But you will know, from your experience I hope, that sometimes your faith doesn't need to spiral down, your faith can spiral upwards, because you trust God for a little thing, and whoa, blow me down, God does it. What does that do to your faith? Lifts it up a little bit. You trust Him for the next thing, and you go, whoa, and your faith is on the way up. The question this morning is, are you on the way down or are you on the way up? See, Malachi, they were on their way down. They were going, God doesn't do anything. So their faith was down. They, they saw that he wasn't doing anything. So they had even less faith. And so it spiraled down. 
question is, how do you start going up if your tendency is to go down? And that's how this whole chapter ends. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard, a scroll of remembrance was written. So they entered this time, uh, those who feared the Lord, there were some who, who heard the rebuke. When, uh, when, when Malachi said, well, God's saying that, that, that your attitude is all wrong. They, they recognized it. They could see it. And they go, okay, we're, we're, we're up to sort this out. Those who feared the Lord, they began to talk to each other. The Lord was present, listening and hearing. And then they wrote this scroll of remembrance concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. It seems that this was a record book. Now, there are different ideas about what this record book might be, and we've, we've talked about some of them in our praying and, uh, and mentioned already about this, this idea that it's a, a long list of, of things that, uh, that people have done uh, in order to commend the people. And it is that, but I think something so much more. You see, the Old Testament has lots of scrolls of remembrance. Lots of times when a scroll was written that simply recounted all the tremendous things that God had done. So if you look in the Psalms, there are plenty of Psalms which is just a history of what God has done. Look at Joshua 24, for example. At an important moment in Israel's history, they go back and they they listen, they recount, they retell the story of every good thing that God has done, how he's been faithful, how he's been powerful, how he's been present, how he's worked out his purpose when everything seemed lost. This is the same. They began to write a scroll of remembrance, a list of all the things that God had done through his servants. Why? Because when I begin to hear, when I begin to see afresh what God has done, it builds faith for what God will do. Will do. By encouraging one another, with all that God had done, there was this little small group saying, we are determined to get our faith spiraling up again. And so we're going to talk about it. We're going to write a scroll. We're going to share with one another every good thing that God does. We need to be that community that keeps reading, that keeps adding to our scroll of remembrance of all the great things that God has done. We need to regularly remind ourselves. We need to often rehearse the history, the story of our lives and the way God has blessed us. Count your blessings, name them. You're showing your age. And it will. Hands up if you've known that to be true. Three of you, great. A few more. It is true though, isn't it? You start to think about how good God's been to you. And the scroll is bigger than you imagine it to be in your moment of cynicism. It's at the heart of our church text for last year. Go tell how much the Lord has done for you. It's not just because people, other people need to hear. You go and tell because you need to keep telling your story about all that God has done for you. You see, if we talk about in this place all the great things that God has done, we will see God doing more great things. We talk about whatever else, we'll just get a load of whatever else. And any small groups when you meet together, what's the dominant conversation? Do we talk about what God is doing? Or are we consumed with what we are doing, or maybe what others are doing, for good or for ill? In our personal conversations, with friends and with our family, as Heather was suggesting, do we talk about what God is doing? so that we can combat our natural tendency 
towards cynicism and lack of faith. And you don't need to be around Christians for long to know that it's a natural tendency in all of us to allow faith to fade. Finally, the book of Hebrews. You might want to turn to it if you've got a Bible nearby. Page 1209. It's a famous chapter of uh, faith. It's a scroll of remembrance. It's about all the fantastic things God has done through all kinds of different people. The good, the great, the bad and the ugly. They're all there. And God has done some amazing things through them. So, for example, by faith, da 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 verse 17. By faith, Isaac, da 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 verse 20. By faith, Jacob, da 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 verse 21. By faith, Joseph, da 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 verse 22. All the great things. And this scroll of remembrance is written in such a way to say, never forget it's faith. It's faith that unlocks the power and the purpose of God. Never forget that it's faith. And then it breaks off quite early on in the list to offer us verse 6. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Hey, you can be doing everything, but without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. Now, we're good with the first bit. We do believe that God exists. But my experience, the second one is a lot harder. Do you have faith to believe that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him? That deep in your heart you know it's true, rather than deep in your heart you go, hmm, no points, futile, nothing much will happen here. God doesn't do much anymore, not with me anyway, my family, my situation, my circumstance. That's the trap of unbelief. And this scroll of remembrance in Hebrews 11 was written to combat that trap of unbelief. And we need to be a living example of that story, that journey, that scroll in our lives. Unless they got out of the trap of unbelief in Malachi's day, nothing much would happen. It would have been just like Nazareth. Nothing much would happen. We don't get out of the trap of unbelief. It could be just like us. Nothing much will happen. And it brings us full circle. Malachi's day, they got so used to their low level of faith, they no longer saw it as a problem. It's just the way that it is. Hey, we all think like this. We all think that it's a waste of time serving God anymore. Are we, by the attitude of our hearts, saying the same harsh things to God? Deep down, I'm thinking, God, I don't think there's much point. Or are we like verse 16? Fearing the Lord, talking to each other, writing this scroll of remembrance, doing everything we can to nourish and nurture each other's faith. And at the end of the day, it's not a great load of faith that we need, is it? It's a little bit of faith in a great God that moves big mountains. So we don't need much of it. Just a little bit will do. Jesus said that, just a little bit. Let's nurture, encourage one another. Let's tell the stories that faith might be our story. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. Let's pray. Lord, I'm sorry for the cynicism that I can find in my heart. I probably wouldn't dare saying it out loud that it's all a waste of time, but sometimes by my attitude, it I'm not sure I really believe you're going to move. 
you're really going to be at work. I'm not really sure that tomorrow, Monday, I'm really going to see you moving in power in my life and through the various situations that I face. Hey, forgive us when we feel like that. And thank you that faith is a gift. We can't work it up. But we can receive it. And one of the ways we receive it is by listening to your story through other people. May we be sharing stories, writing scrolls, remembering, going and telling of all the Lord has done for us, counting our blessings one by one, being prepared daily to be surprised by all that you've done. And if we ever think that it's really pointless, take us back to the cross. But we see that you died, you gave your life, you were that committed, you gave everything you had, that we might be everything you want us to be, that your church might be everything in your heart for her to be. When we're not sure of your commitment to us anymore, take us back to the cross, when you gave it all. And in that place, help us to be lost, lost in wonder and love and praise. Help us to be overwhelmed by your commitment to us. Help us there as we look into the eyes of a dying Saviour who is now alive to know for certain that he'll never let us go. That when we've lost faith in him, he hasn't lost faith in us. And he's with us and he's for us. To know deep in our hearts that you long to receive the reward for which you died. Help us now as we gather around your table to know these things for sure. You chose the cross.